0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have Ryan Sullivan, he's an atmospheric chemist, associate professor uh, in mechanical engineering, and associate director of the Institute for Green Science at Carnegie Mellon University. And we we'll gonna be talking about uh, atmospheric chemistry. So, Ryan, thank you for coming.
1: Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: I, I guess it's funny. Atmospheric chemistry, I don't know, the public, they probably know enough, I, I guess, just enough to be dangerous is my guess. It's something that... <laughs> You know in the world of chemistry people wouldn't really know anything about it because they wouldn't care but atmospheric chemistry i think a lot of people have heard of nox and SOx, and you know Mm -hmm. global warming and things like that so what's it what's your focus within the uh, area of atmospheric chemistry
1: sure uh so i mean my big broad focus the questions i'm trying to answer is to understand uh chemical reactions chemical transformations that happen involving uh pollutants but also natural um species in the atmosphere and I focus on the particles in the atmosphere, the particulate matter uh and uh one of the major questions my research addresses is how do particles interact with clouds, make cloud droplets or ice crystals, and uh how does that then uh feedback in on climate um so these aerosol cloud interactions are one of the largest sources of uncertainty in our ability to understand and predict how human activities are changing the planet's climate
0: so how do uh you know i'm looking outside it's uh i'm in austin texas it's like 100 degrees here
1: uh-huh. i'm looking
0: I don't know how high up i see some clouds um yep. what's the temperature where where the clouds are at that i'm looking at you know like how high are they and you know i'm starting to wonder like i don't know much about them what, what do you what are some basic facts about them that are
1: interesting sure yeah it often surprises people to learn that uh the atmosphere cools um pretty rapidly so uh, as much as 10 degrees celsius per kilometer i know metric units that scientists use. <laughs> um, so that, that's really rapid, right? So I don't know exactly what clouds you're looking at, but often they're a couple kilometers, um, at least the base, you know, and it might be a kilometer or two in altitude. And, and the clouds can um, rise over, form over large extents, you know, of many kilometers, just if you have like a big convective uh, thunderstorm with those big anvils that form. So you can have a huge temperature gradient um, in a cloud Uh, And this is also why clouds are often frozen and that also surprises people Um, because the clouds uh, form over such large um, ranges of altitude and because the atmosphere cools at such a rapid rate as you go up in altitude, you can easily get below um, zero degrees Celsius uh, in a cloud. But the other surprising thing about clouds is that cloud droplets don't freeze at zero degrees Celsius uh, if it's just a pure a mostly pure water droplet, uh, it won't freeze until almost minus 40 degrees Celsius. There's this big energy barrier uh, for the water molecules to assemble into a little ice crystal embryo, uh, which causes the whole droplet to freeze. Uh, And particles, some rare particles called ice nucleating particles, they have these special properties about their surface that reduce that energy barrier and allow the cloud droplets to freeze at much warmer temperatures. Um, Some biological ice nucleants like proteins produced by bacteria can actually cause freezing at say minus five degrees Celsius. Um, And so to connect back to my research, as we are changing the types of particles in the atmosphere through human activities and emissions. Um, we are changing the cloud precursor particles in the atmosphere, the number of them, their abundance, their distribution, but also their type. Um, and some particles are good at making liquid clouds, droplets, and others are good at these, for these rare ones at making ice crystals.
0: I would think that you said some clouds can be high as a kilometer in height. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That means that there's a temperature gradient through all clouds, mm-hmm. you know, warmth or cold. So wouldn't Mm -hmm. that cause conduction of heat upwards through the cloud and then gravity pulling downward would have another effect? I mean, there's probably a lot of cloud dynamics, right?
1: Absolutely. And that is absolutely it's that balance between gravity and convective uplift that that basically causes clouds to, um, you know, most most clouds are pretty stable. Right. You look at the base of the cloud and it's not really changing. But you've also maybe noticed people often when they draw clouds, they draw them all puffy. And circular all around but real clouds uh their base is flat and that's because the cloud has to rise the air mass has to rise to a certain level and as it rises it cools and that's because it's expanding because the pressure in the atmosphere decreases as you rise so it's rising and cooling and then eventually it cools so much that the water vapor supersaturates, you hit the dew point and that's where you make the cloud and that all happens at the same level in the atmosphere in a given location and that's why the base of clouds are flat
0: so the hmm. Interesting. So a cloud is continuously condensing at the top. And is it so? Is it will it will they tend to grow upwards over time, or how will a cloud shape change over time given? Yeah, good good, static conditions.
1: Good question. Uh, A a cloud uh, will continue to rise until it basically runs out of uh, convective energy. uh, but you get when, whenever there's a, a, a phase transition, so when water goes from gas phase to and condenses to liquid phase, you get a bunch of latent heat release. So that gives you a more a more convective boost, so the cloud can keep rising. And then if the cloud droplets are able to freeze, then they get another release of latent heat. And so that's one of the reasons why if you freeze a cloud, the cloud tends to uh, grow to much uh, higher altitudes. That's that's where you get those really big. Thunderstorm anvils that form—they basically they usually go rise as high as the tropopause, which is the top of the troposphere, the barrier between the troposphere and the stratosphere, and then they can't rise anymore because um, there's a there's a temperature inversion. So in the stratosphere, temperature of the atmosphere actually increases with altitude, so they're no longer buoyant um, and they'll start spreading uh, across as they hit the tropopause. Um, And also, as a cloud freezes, it tends to yeah grow over really large extents. And frozen clouds also don't tend to last as long because um, we talked about the balance between conductive uplift and then the gravitational settling. And the ice crystals that form grow larger and quicker than the unfrozen cloud droplets. And they actually steal water from the unfrozen cloud droplets. So the ice crystals grow really big and then they sediment because they're so heavy. Uh, and so that's why uh, the biggest source of precipitation over land is actually from frozen clouds. And that often surprises people because by the time these ice crystals, basically snow reaches us, it's, it's usually melted, right? Because it's going back down through that temperature gradient and warming. Um, so they usually melt by the time they reach us. But whenever you like get in Texas, like one of those really big, intense, you know, sudden storms, especially if there's thunder and lightning associated, it's definitely because the cloud yeah. froze and that's cold rain. Um, ice crystals that are falling on you, and they're just melting before they reach the surface.
0: You know, it's funny too. I, I if you ask someone what's a cloud made of, they would just say, I guess, water vapor. But uh huh. I mean, yep. well, they, they're not just made of one thing. I. It sounds like they're made of all That's kinds right. of different things. And, you know. So what what does a typical cloud have in it?
1: Um. So it is mostly water. It's true, but uh, you 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 need a little particle seed to even make a liquid cloud droplet. Um. And so they're. Depending on what the particle the nucleated the droplet, there may be some of that that doesn't dissolve that's left behind. So like some dust or some soot. Uh, and then all the soluble stuff in the particles um, dissolves as well. So the, the, the salts, the inorganic solutes, lots of organic carbon-based uh, material. And then uh, those cloud droplets are actually important little chemical reactors in the atmosphere. So a lot of chemistry happens in cloud. Um, you mentioned SOX at the beginning. So sulfur dioxide emissions, like from coal-fired power plants, for example, that gets oxidized into sulfuric acid, which makes sulfate aerosol. And most of that oxidation actually occurs in cloud droplet chemistry. So the sulfur dioxide is soluble. It dissolves into all this water in the cloud droplets. Oxidants like ozone and hydrogen peroxide dissolve in. And then you have this little, these little microbeakers um, in the cloud droplets that is doing the oxidation, converting SO2 to sulfuric acid to sulfate.
0: So it sounds like clouds have a lot of roles in our atmosphere. I mean, maybe as sources of something, as like you said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, places where chemistry happens. Like, what are the roles of clouds besides just providing cover, you know, from the sun? Like, what are the different roles? <laughs> sure, of sure.
1: Well, well, one of them actually goes back to the very beginning of our chat, which is, uh, you know, removing pollutants from the atmosphere. So the best way to remove air pollutants from the atmosphere, especially the particles, is through precipitation called uh, uh, wet deposition. So, you know, you've got all these these rain droplets or ice crystals falling through the atmosphere, and they're basically like big collectors. So any particle that bumps into them will probably be sucked into, swallowed up into this raindrop or ice crystal, uh, and so they're removed from the atmosphere, but of course, the pollution doesn't go away. We've just taken it from the atmosphere and now it's landing on the land or in the oceans or the lakes. And this, if it's acidic, that can cause you know acid deposition, acid rain, um, which isn't as severe as it used to be. The Clean Air Act has been very effective in reducing uh, sulfate levels, for example, especially in the northeast uh, where I am, where the acid rain used to be very acidic and you would just have these huge swaths of forests and lakes that were dead as a result. Um, So that's one of the important roles. We talked a little bit about important chemistry that happens in clouds. Um, And one thing I should also point out back to the role of clouds in climate change is most people are familiar with liquid clouds. Liquid clouds are very bright and reflective, so they reflect sunlight. Um, And so they play an important role in offsetting a lot of the warming that is caused by greenhouse gas emissions, which um, trap outgoing infrared radiation and warm the planet. So this Uh, reflection of light by the clouds um, offsets that. And as you add more particles to a liquid cloud, you make the cloud brighter because you essentially take the same amount of liquid cloud water and spread it over more and smaller cloud droplets, making the cloud brighter. But here's the other surprising thing, and it goes back to ice crystals and frozen clouds. Frozen clouds, especially if they're at a high altitude, um, actually help to warm the planet. They also trap the outgoing infrared radiation Radiated by the Earth's surface, um, they aren't very good at reflecting incoming solar radiation. and so one of the big questions in understanding how aerosol particles in atmospheric chemistry are changing the properties of cloud and climate is understanding this split between um, are we favoring the formation of liquid clouds or frozen clouds
0: hmm. when i'm when I'm looking like again, I
1: know you can't see what I could see, but <laughs> I'm looking at the clouds outside,
0: the tops are much wider and then it's turning uh-huh. gray, you know, near okay. the bottom of the cloud. So what does that come from? I think,
1: I think a storm is on the way, most likely. That sounds like, that sounds like a very convective system. Um, yeah, it sounds like the cloud is, has is risen over quite a large extent, and if you're seeing that spreading like an anvil at the top, um, that's kind of what we were talking about before. Probably the tops there of like those clouds are many kilometers up in altitude, so even though it's, like, really hot at the surface in Texas right now, by by yeah. that altitude in the atmosphere, it's definitely below zero degrees Celsius. There's a good chance that those tops of those clouds that you're seeing are frozen, um, and so if you're planning to like bike home or do something outside later today, you might want to revisit that. I would predict, without being able to see the cloud you're looking at, that um, it's going to uh, start to, to rain.
0: What yeah? You know, what about the amount of clouds? Like give it. You know, will you not see clouds like this if there's only a few? You know, and what ah. happens? How do the dynamics change? Like why? Okay, so why would why would there be? This is a really basic question. Why would there be a cloudy day versus a a day where there's like no clouds in the sky or it's very sparse?
1: Sure, good question. So it's not all explained by chemistry and the particles. That's what I think about. So a lot of it is, as you mentioned earlier on, is like the dynamics. So first question is how much water vapor is there around in the atmosphere, right? Um, and so that depends on where the air mass has come from. You know, has it, did it pass over a big body of water like the Gulf of Mexico near you guys, for example? That's a huge source of water vapor to the atmosphere. This is also why I did my PhD in San Diego, and San Diego's a surprising climate, right? It's, it's, a, it's basically a desert right beside the ocean. Why? Because the Pacific Ocean off of Southern California is very cold because the cold Alaskan current is upwelling there, and cold water doesn't evaporate as much as warm water, like off the coast of Florida. So that's why it's much drier in california and really humid um, in florida for example so how much water vapor is in the atmosphere on a given day matters and then the dynamics matter we need we need that convection right so the the ground needs to be a lot hotter than the atmosphere above it to cause this convection and rising so that you get a cloud forming and then we can think about what i focus on what what are the particles look like that day Uh, are there more or less particles um, that can certainly influence um, how the clouds form uh, and how long they last. Um, are the particles there better at nucleating liquid cloud droplets or nucleating ice crystals? That's going to affect the types of clouds um, you get as well.
0: Boy, it's amazing how complicated and how you can get such divergent phenomena from something that just appears to be far away and you know not really affecting anything that's going on in the ground.
1: Absolutely, and and now can you, you're hopefully starting to see some of the big challenges, like why these aerosol cloud climate interactions and feedbacks are such a major source of uncertainty in our ability to understand climate change. Which I don't mean to imply that like we don't, we climate change is you know there's a strong scientific consensus that human activities are causing climate change. Um, we have high certainty about the effects of greenhouse gases. There are some less certain components and one of them is this effect of aerosol particles on clouds. One of the challenges there is, you know, if you look at the cloud you're looking at, it looks pretty big to you. But if you consider the the climate models that we run, that we run simulations to try to forecast how the climate is going to change as we change our emission scenarios, like are we going to do a really good job about decarbonizing or do a business as usual scenario? And the problem is that clouds in the model are usually smaller much smaller than the size of a grid so the way a chemical um, transport model or climate model runs you basically divide the earth into all these little cubes um, but the cubes mm. have dimensions of many kilometers on each side and clouds are usually much smaller than kilometers um, and so you have to sort of make some approximations or parameterizations to describe the clouds in that um in that grid because you're describing something that is a subgrid scale feature so that's one of the Challenges in in modeling how we're affecting um, cloud, the properties of clouds through our um, pollutant emissions.
0: Hmm. If um, have you sampled clouds, or have you seen data where people have sampled various yeah. clouds? To look at the co- you know the chemical composition of even adjacent clouds, or you know clouds yeah. in a given.
1: Them- I have actually. So right now, in my research we mostly focus on doing laboratory experiments. But what what we really try to do is to bring the atmosphere into the lab, so we study very realistic complex systems, and we developed um, new techniques like optical tweezers and microfluidics to do this. And I'm happy to chat more about that. But to your question, yes, I I have done cloud research flights um, during my postdoctoral research while I was at Colorado State University. It was a campaign called CalWater. The objectives were to understand how um, uh, regional pollution in California and also long-range pollution coming across from Asia, across the Pacific Ocean, was affecting the properties of clouds And precipitation um, with a focus on the sierra nevadas um, in california why the sierra nevadas those are that's where you get a lot of precipitation um, and the snowpack uh, understanding changes in the snowpack is very important for california's water supply california also generates a lot of hydroelectric power and so they really need to know or have a good understanding of and predictions of uh, when they're going to get um, rainfall and snowfall Um, so we outfitted uh, a research aircraft um a turboprop plane um, that the uh, Department of Energy uh, operates. Um, They're actually replacing it now with a newer one. So we put a whole bunch of uh, fancy instrumentation on it to measure all sorts of properties of the particles and the clouds and the atmosphere. And we did a series of cloud research flights for about a month. um, And we did observe differences. So some days, especially when we were several kilometers up, We did uh, measure uh, evidence uh, of long-range transport of dust and soot coming across from Asia, and we did observe that there were clear differences on those days in terms of the properties of the clouds. When you had that long-range transport, the clouds tended to freeze a lot more, and that caused some really extensive precipitation. We also had some ground measurements, um, and the precipitation, the snow was so severe, sometimes on the ground that like they couldn't even get back to the ground station for a day. So they just had to like leave the instruments running and trust that they were okay. Um, and that work was published in science back in 2013, I think. Um, so yes. Uh, and we're not the first to do this. Uh, we were the first to document this influence of long range transfer from Asia on clouds over California and storms and precipitation. So yes, there is, there is uh field evidence um, uh, demonstrating that, uh, all of these effects uh, that, that the particles and the types of particles that are present can actually have important consequences for what's going on with the clouds and climate and precipitation.
0: What does it mean when you when you seed a cloud? Is that such a thing? Can you?
1: Can oh, you, seeding, sure, sure.
0: Put the cloud yeah. towards you know, raining or dumping itself out?
1: Yeah. So this is actually California still does a fair amount of cloud seeding again because they really need they need precipitation for their hydroelectric um, power um, generation. Uh, and usually when people are seeding clouds they're putting ice nucleants into the cloud because again the best way to make a cloud rain is to get it to freeze and i think the major ice nucleant they still use is actually silver iodide it's been around for a long time uh silver iodide tends to it has a very similar crystal structure to ice so it sort of provides a template for ice and that's why it helps to nucleate the ice phase and cause the clouds to freeze um but cloud seeding it's it's very hit or miss because, again, it's not just about what particles are around and what ice nucleons are around. If you don't have water vapor around, good luck getting a cloud to form or to freeze. If you don't have the right dynamics, um, also challenging. But yes, cloud seeding, weather modification is what it's called, is still done. Um, uh, the insurance industry also does it because uh, to s- try to um, get severe uh, clouds that are going to turn into severe storms to get them to dissipate quicker. Um, to, to lessen uh, the damage that these storms cause.
0: You mentioned earlier that, uh, how well, let me put it a different way, how far can clouds travel? A like given cloud, can it literally cross continents and move halfway around the Earth? Or does it kind of, you know, like what's the fate of any given sure. cloud for the most part? Does it dissipate? What yeah.
1: Good question. Uh, so it depends on, the, of course, on the type of cloud. The cloud you're looking at in Texas, I don't think, is going to last very long, you know, because it rose over such large extents and it sounds like it's about to start precipitating. And precipitation is the best way to get a cloud um, to uh, disappear. Um, but yes, yeah, smaller, sort of like if you're in California. Every day you have these, like, wimpy, shallow marine stratocumulus clouds, the low kind of clouds, so they never rain, or maybe you just get a little bit of drizzle because they never freeze. And those clouds can last for a long time. Um, and, yeah, clouds can travel over uh, quite large distances. I guess it's not always clear, is it, is it the same cloud that was there before? It's definitely the same air mass, so we would call it, like, the same, like, cloud system or the same storm system um, so uh, certainly they can um, exist over quite large spatial extents the most extreme example of course would be a hurricane right um, which uh, is uh, the East Coast is experiencing right now
0: can you can you tag a cloud and then find it later or see, like are there any very long-lived clouds that have been around for years
1: there actually are and we've used them as laboratories so uh, on the tops of mountains um, so the air has to rise as it goes over a mountain and when it rises, it cools. And so often on the top of a mountain, a cloud forms. Uh, but then when the cloud, when the air mass starts to descend off the back of the mountain, it's warming. And so the cloud dissipates. So the cloud basically sits on the top of the mountain. Um, uh, and uh, if you're ever like in Colorado or Utah, or Wyoming, you'll often see these like UFO looking like clouds near mountains, uh, they're called lenticular clouds or lens clouds. Um, and sometimes those detach and they float away, uh, and you can also get wave clouds that form behind the mountains. So um, I guess you could you could you could follow that cloud like in satellite imagery, for example. Um, but I don't know really know of a way to like physically tag the cloud. Um, ta- clouds are very dynamic, so they're they're constantly um, the cloud droplets in them individually are constantly forming and then dissipating and then maybe reforming again.
0: So again, have people found clouds that are? I mean, how old are some of the oldest clouds known? What's the guess?
1: Um, I don't think of a particular. Cl- okay, so one one exception, and th- these are quite interesting, is actually in the Arctic. There there are these uh, stratus clouds, which means layered, um, that uh, and they're often frozen, um, that exist for days or weeks, and that's a big question in the scientific community is like what is allowing these clouds to persist for so long because most clouds do not last that long um, and because they're frozen it means that there has to be some sort of continual source of ice nucleating particles that is allowing that keeps freezing um new cloud droplets essentially and allows these uh, arctic stratus uh, clouds to persist for so long Uh, and i think the most credible hypothesis is that the the ice ice nucleating particles, they nucleate ice crystals in the cloud. Those ice crystals fall out because they get too big and heavy. So they fall out due to gravity. They melt, they dissipate, and then they get carried back up by convection back into the clouds. So it's like a recycling of the ice nucleating particles that explains these very stable, uh, long-lived clouds in the Arctic that can persist for weeks.
0: Oh, so the oldest, the granddaddy clouds are just weeks old?
1: Yes. Yes. And particles last, for the smaller particles that are really good at nucleating clouds, they will also last for about a week. Um, again, their main loss mechanism is uh, being rained out.
0: Is, is the chemistry in longer-lived clouds different from really, really short-lived ones?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's just been a lot more time for chemistry to happen, uh, for sure. Uh, and those long-lived Arctic clouds—that's uh, really important because uh, the Arctic is the most, the poles are the most sensitive regions on the planet to climate change. Why? Because Uh, the ice and the snow in the polar regions is a big reflector, right? And so it is reflecting sunlight back to space. And as climate change causes more loss of the glaciers and the ice caps, we are losing some of our um, reflection of solar radiation, which means more solar radiation is being deposited in the planet, which causes more warming. So it's a positive feedback. But if you have these clouds over the Arctic, depending on if they're liquid clouds or frozen clouds, Liquid clouds would help to um, reflect solar radiation and thus provide a cooling effect, but the frozen clouds would likely cause a warming effect by absorbing the outgoing infrared radiation.
0: So what, what do you see, how are the nature of clouds changing as uh, more you know, man-made pollutants are going into the atmosphere? You know, as What can we expect from clouds as global warming continues?
1: That is a great question, but if anyone tells you they have a really good answer for that, uh, I don't think they do because the question is so complex and so and the uncertainties are so large, and I know that's like probably not a very satisfying answer, but it is it is the truth. So the honest answer is we we do not know, especially because um, you wouldn't want to give like a global average answer because clouds do not exist in a global average, right? The clouds that you're experiencing right now in Texas are very different than the clouds I'm experiencing up here in Pittsburgh. Um, and so to answer that question, we'd really have to determine or predict with good accuracy how cloud properties, microphysics, um, are going to change, um, in different regions of the planet, um, under different climate change scenarios.
0: Have, uh, have scientists tried to, uh, use clouds in the lab, you know, make them in the lab so that they can accomplish oh, sure. chemistry. That otherwise would be difficult to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like in in my postdoctoral research, we used an, an instrument that's basically an ice chamber. So it pulls particles into the chamber. It passes them through between two ice-coated walls, um, and then the part, and then all the particles nucleate, turn into a, 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 cl- a liquid cloud droplet with the original particles still inside them. And then, if that particle happens to be an ice nucleant, um, we can vary the temperature that the particles, the cloud droplets, are experiencing then those particles will, those cloud droplets will freeze and we detect them. So that's like a a lab chamber, um, an ice chamber that you can use in the lab. But we also put it on that the aircraft for the CalWater uh, cloud research flights I was describing. In my lab, uh, we've developed two other ways of creating clouds um, in the lab. One is using microfluidics. Uh, So we're one of the first groups to use microfluidics. We basically generate a whole bunch of little micro droplets. They're uh, nanoliters in volume. So about 100 microns in diameter, Um, and those water droplets can contain different particles of interest, and they're floating in oil, Uh, and each droplet containing particles gets trapped in a little micro well, so it can't go anywhere, it can't interact with the other droplets, and then we take that array of 600 or so little micro droplets containing particles, uh, and we cool them, and we watch with a microscope, because when each droplet freezes and they all freeze at slightly different temperatures, um, it it goes from dark to white, uh, and then we just uh, use an algorithm to detect when each uh, droplet froze, so we get the the uh, the freezing temperature spectrum. So the fraction of the total droplets that is frozen as a function of temperature as we cool from zero degrees all the way down to minus 40. Um, and then we've also built two aerosol optical tweezers instruments in my lab. This is an instrument where you literally grab onto a droplet in a laser beam. uh, And that laser beam induces a spectrum, a Raman spectrum of the droplet that we retrieve in real time. So we get real-time information, measurements of how the droplet is responding or behaving. Um, The optical tweezers technique, it's the same technique invented by Ashkin, who won the Nobel Prize in physics for it last year. Um, It's widely used in biology, Um, for example. You can, uh, but not many people uh, use it uh, do aerosol optical tweezers. So usually they're grabbing onto spheres or particles in so floating around in liquid. With the laser beam, we're grabbing onto droplets in air, which is a little bit more difficult. Um, and we have constructed a temperature-controlled aerosol optical tweezers chamber, so we can we can cool, we can control the temperatures of the droplets um, down to minus a minus 20 or so. It gets trickier to go lower than that. And so now we're starting to use that um, new ability to study how different types of Droplets containing different types of particles, or as they're bombarded by different types of particles, um, how that um, causes the droplet to to freeze and nucleate ice at at the individual droplet level.
0: I mean, could could you consider clouds to be a, a separate phase of matter, or they don't have that en- enough robustness to be called that? Uh, uh,
1: they they are a complex form of matter, so. Um an aerosol droplet is a, an aerosol is a suspension of solid or liquid material in the gas phase. But inside each aerosol particle, you could have some solid material. Um, you could have all sorts of different components, right? Uh, whether they may be mixed all with each other or it may be very heterogeneous. So some region of the solid particle is like uh, a mineral dust. And then another region is maybe uh, like black carbon soot. And then in the, um, you can also have liquidy stuff, so liquid organic carbon based material of different varying uh, oxidation state and polarity and structure. Uh, and then you can have all the all the dissolved stuff in water. So all of the like inorganics and things like that. So it's really a, a complex soup. And because each particle in the atmosphere can p- be quite different from its neighbor, um, even in the same environment, that's why my group uh, really focuses on using single particle analysis techniques because we really wanna understand how the different differences in particle composition and mixtures, mixing state, uh, changes the reactivity um, of the particles in the atmosphere and changes their ability to nucleate clouds uh, and, and change climate.
0: So if you add up all the cloud cover over the whole globe, how much of a, I mean, this is a very general question, but what uh-huh. is the combined total effect of all the cloud cover over the whole world? Like, you know, maybe a, how does it affect the earth in different ways, you know, that is it a sink for X number of tons of NOX and SOX? Is it a, does it reflect, sure, sure. you know, 30% of the sun's energy? I mean, what are some big metrics
1: around the clouds? So, so the average albedo or reflectivity of the planet is 30%. Um, and that is mostly driven by cloud cover, uh, the deserts are the are the other big reflectors in the atmosphere, like the oceans are really absorptive. And so that's why it also really matters where a cloud forms. If a cloud forms, A liquid, bright liquid, reflective cloud forms over the desert. It doesn't have a very big effect on um, the radiation because the desert would be reflecting the sunlight anyways. But if it's over a dark ocean, then that liquid, bright liquid cloud, has a huge effect on changing the the uh, the radiative balance. Um, And then, so that was your question about uh, reflectivity. Um, What was your other question?
0: Again, when you when you look right, so we talked about. So, all the clouds in the world reflect about 30% uh-huh.
1: of the sun's energy.
0: What are some yeah. other big metrics that the entire cloud man oh, yes. does? And, you know, sure. Again, does so, it so, act like sink so or it makes tons of something?
1: Yeah. So, most of, not all, but the majority of sulfate um, aerosol, which is a big component to, in particulate matter, which comes from the oxidation of sulfur dioxide, which is largely emitted by um, energy production, especially from coal fired power plants. Most of that. Oxidation to produce sulfate aerosol happens in clouds um, and so that's really important like one of the major contributors, but not the only one to the the really you know dangerously high levels of particulate matter in in Asia, for example, um, a lot of that is sulfate um in part because they burn a lot of coal um, for power
0: okay yeah it's it's amazing it seems something so simple, but I mean I know this is like I there's so much to learn about clouds it's crazy. No, wonder, no wonder why you're so interested. In it. <laughs> yes and why it keeps
1: a lot of us busy yeah
0: well when people say to you you have your head in the clouds you say yes i do
1: (laughs) yes and then i I usually try to somehow fit in something about them freezing i actually love if i'm giving a seminar and it's like a really stormy day um it's great because i hope that most people will like leave one of my seminars now thinking the next time you know they see one of these big intense storms that now they know that it's because the clouds froze um and that it was particles that probably uh, caused the clouds to freeze.
0: Hmm. Well, very good. Um, and there's millions of more questions I could ask you, but you know we've gone on for a while. <laughs> What's the uh, any breakthroughs in your research that you're hoping for in the next couple of years? What do you want to elucidate and figure out?
1: Um, so we've been focusing a lot in my group on uh, understanding uh, the chemistry of wildfire smoke. Uh, so we call it biomass burning aerosol. So when trees or other materials burn. Um, They emit a lot of gas phase, but also particle phase material to the atmosphere. And we have found that sometimes uh, you can actually have quite a a bit of um, ice nucleation activity in the biomass burning aerosol in that smoke uh, coming from the wildfires. Um, And so we burn different types of of biofuels, uh, different types of trees and tall grasses in our lab. We have a combustion facility here. And then we collect the aerosol and also the ash that is left over. We analyze it, and we often find a lot of ice nucleation activity. Uh, and we've re- we've discovered that a lot of that the, the ice nucleants are actually produced from new mineral particles that are produced by the combustion process itself. So it's not mineral particles that were already in the uh, soil or in the fuel. They're actually produced by the burning process itself. So that's. Um, a very new perspective on what 's going on in this wildfire smoke and where the icy glands are coming from, so we're just getting ready to submit a paper on that that we 've been working on for several years now because it's a really complex system to uh clouds are complex and then wildfire smoke is a really complex um chemical soup as well, but really important because it 's a such a huge source of emissions of air pollutants uh globally to the atmosphere
0: okay very good well what's the best way for people to find out more from you? Uh, to reach out ask questions etc
1: uh sure uh i'm part of the center for atmosphere
0: particle studies
1: so we have a, a website called caps um or cmu.edu slash particulate dot dot sorry dash matter um is a good way um to find out more
0: okay any other ways or that one way is the best
1: um you, you can look up my i'm actually just about to launch my uh, research group website, but it's not quite done. It will be done in a month or two. Uh, you can look up my faculty bio page. I'm in both the departments of Chemistry and the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University.
0: Okay, well that's great. Well, Ryan, it's been a good call. Thank you so much for being okay. here.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3d printing gene editing bitcoin blockchain the microbiome quantum computing virtual reality and exploring space are much closer than you might think in fact many early versions of these technologies are in play right now and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast my goal for you the listener is to learn from these podcasts you may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better steer you towards a new career